we're going to continue, um, as I've been preaching through the book of 1 Samuel, I'm going to continue this morning into 1 Samuel chapter 3. You can turn there with me in your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Some of our prayer meetings recently, Pastor Carl has noted that TBS hosted a a prayer meeting for for churches, for pastors to come and pray that the Lord would raise up laborers. It's become evident that there is increasingly a need for laborers in preaching the gospel. Seminary attendance uh, or enrollment uh, has perhaps been down in some places and pastoral vacancies available. Some churches closing their doors. Some churches, of course, we know as well, will cut the number of services or shorten the teaching time, read Scripture selectively, or soften some of the hard truths and water down the message. Where in some places there is need, in other places there is a devaluing of of God's Word. And in some places, there is a failure to preach the whole counsel of God. I think that across our nation, across the West, it is not an exaggeration to say that the Word of the Lord is becoming increasingly rare. The proclamation of the truth is becoming increasingly rare. Such is the description of the situation in the day of Samuel, in the day of his mother Hannah, his father Elkanah, under the priesthood of Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. It is said in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. It was rare. There was no frequent vision, it says. Perhaps we can sympathize in our day that the word of the Lord is more and more rare for one reason or another. But let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, with this. As we look at this passage, we see that though this time for them was a dark period in Israel's history, the light did not go out. Though the Lord's word was rare, he endeavored nonetheless to reveal himself to his people. As a blind man needs vision and those in darkness need light, so we need the Lord to reveal himself to us through the prophet whom he appoints. And that's what the Lord is doing in this passage. He is appointing a prophet. So that's what we're going to see this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 3. I'm I'm going to read through the passage as we go, portion by portion, heading by heading, and we're going to split up the chapter into three sections, three headings. Begins with a speech, and I could say the first heading is this. Sorry, not a speech. It begins with the circumstances. The first heading is this. 
We have a blind priest. And after we see a blind priest, we see also a bleak prediction. But in the end, there is this word of encouragement. And lastly, we see a blossoming prophet being raised up in their days. We'll consider as well how this has relevance and application to our lives. So let's begin with verses 1 through 9. A blind priest. 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 9. Let's read this together. This is what the Word says. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the Word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again, the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, You shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Again, a bit of backstory to catch us up for any who may have missed previous uh, sermons from 1 Samuel 1 and 2. In chapter 1, God answers the prayer of this um, humble woman, Hannah woman who had been barren, she hopes in deliverance for God's people. She prays to God for a son, and the Lord hears her prayer and grants her this son, Samuel, whom she consecrates to the Lord. And when we come to chapter 2, she celebrates with a song, and we see developing in chapter 2, there is this contrast between this boy, Samuel, and the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Chapter 2 goes back and forth between Samuel, this young boy growing in the presence of the Lord, ministering under the authority of Eli, and contrasting him with Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's own sons, who are blaspheming God, who are abusing their office, and taking advantage of God's people to fill their own bellies, and who are fornicating with the women of the area. 
And so we see a reversal taking place where God is condemning Eli's household and raising up another leader in Israel. So we come to chapter 3, and this contrast continues, and we're called, uh, we're, we're focused again in on Samuel here, who is said to again be ministering to the Lord. Three times in chapter 2 and 3, he's said to be ministering. Three times in chapter 2 and 3, he's said to be growing. He's said to be in the presence of the Lord or in the presence of Eli. He's serving the Lord. And let me just say briefly by way of application, if, if our lives were to be described, would someone describe us as ministering, 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 serving, 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 growing, growing, growing in the Lord. If someone was to write on your tombstone a short description of your life, could they write, accurately so, that you're serving the Lord, you're lifelong, that you're growing in Christ, you're lifelong in Christian maturity. That is what we continue to hear about Samuel. And that should also be true of us as believers, should it not? We should be serving the Lord. We should be frequently found in the presence of the Lord. We should be those who are humble and growing in maturity as Christians. And so Samuel is described in these terms again and again in chapter 2 and 3. He's there ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And we're told, as I've said, that the word of the Lord was rare. And God is about to do something about that. And so we're given this scene in, it's called the temple, but at this time um, probably a more helpful term would be tabernacle, but, but the words are, I think, synonymous in this case. Verse 3 is referred to as the temple of the Lord. But Solomon's temple is built later, of course. This is the tabernacle which has found its place in Shiloh. And the tabernacle, for those who are less aware of, say, the book of Leviticus and in Exodus, the tabernacle is meant to be a model patterned after the dwelling place of God in heaven, that God might dwell in the midst of of his people there in Israel so that God might meet with his people. And there are many directions and prescriptions and arrangements made that this might be possible. Of course, the sacrificial system, ensuring that, that those who come into God's presence are clean and are holy as God is holy. And so... You have Samuel, the young Levite, there lying down in the temple of the Lord, it says, where the ark of God was. Now, the ark of God is, well, it's, in one sense, it's a box made of gold, carried with long poles. And so inside the box, there was um, the testimony, the, the Ten Commandments, uh, the stone tablets. But, but on top of the box is what's called the, the mercy seat. And really, this is symbolic of God's own throne there among his people. 
there in the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies within that tabernacle area once a year. And so that's where the ark was supposed to be. And God says in Exodus chapter 25, when describing the ark of, um, the ark of the covenant, that there is where he will meet with his people. There is where he will dwell among his people. There is where he will speak to Moses and to his people. And so this is a special place, to put it lightly. Samuel, I don't think he's lying right down in the Holy of Holies, but he's lying there within the tabernacle as part of his service would involve attending to various needs within the tabernacle. And it tells us that the light, um, the light of the lamp had not yet gone out, verse 3 the lamp would have been within the holy place, not the holy of holies. And, and during the nighttime, this lamp had to be lit. So what it's telling us is it's nighttime right now. They're, they're sleeping. They've lied down. Samuel is there in the temple lying down. Eli's in his own place. And so what happens then is astounding. God calls this boy Samuel. And though we are not told in this passage um, about Samuel and where he is in terms of his age, um, there, there is a Jewish historian, Josephus, who I guess from Jewish history and tradition says that at this time Samuel would have been about 12. Whether or not that's true, we, we can only depend on the history, not the, not the scripture, but but picture 12-year-old Samuel there lying down, and God calls this boy. He is called a boy in the text at the very least. He calls this boy. But the irony of the whole situation is there is not a recognition of what's actually happening by the priest Eli. See, it tells us that Eli is blind, and you wonder why does the author of Scripture tell us that Eli is blind. Perhaps it's because he needs Samuel's help to attend to these matters within the temple at night. Or maybe there is a, an irony being highlighted for us here in the passage. I think that may be the case. Not only is this man blind physically, he's growing dim in his eyesight, it says, but I think he's also growing dim in his spiritual vision, his spiritual eyesight, you might say. You would think of all people that God might call to Eli, the priest. You would think that of all people, Eli would be keenly aware of the function of the tabernacle, of all that the Lord has done in revealing himself in times past, and that the Lord had said that he would meet with his people there in the Holy of Holies, that he would speak there. 
Eli does not seem to be quickly aware of these matters because it takes not one, not two, but, but three times before he clues in, oh, it's, it's God that's speaking. After all, this is God's dwelling place. God is speaking in his own place where he says, I will be there among my people. This shouldn't come as a shock to the priest, but it does. Three times this boy Samuel hears his name called and three times he goes to the priest thinking the priest needs his help. And only after the third time does he clue in the Lord is is the one calling him. No fault is laid on Samuel. Samuel's just a boy after all. He says he had not he did not yet know the Lord, verse 7. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him, but the Lord is about to. And let me say this, brothers and sisters, by way of application, thinking about what it says in verse 1, thinking about how this apparently was so infrequent in this time of their history. God's revelation to us is itself a gift is itself an expression of His grace. God does not owe us His self-disclosure. We are His creatures. And even more than that, we are rebels, sinners. God does not have to reveal Himself to us in this special way. And yet He does from on high. How much should we cherish this? If the Word of the Lord is rare, if the Word of the Lord is infrequent, if there is less teaching or preaching, how much more should we yearn for it? May we open our Bibles and read. Maybe be quick to attend as, as many services and as many opportunities to hear God's Word preached and taught and expounded as we are able to. And may we be eager as well to submit ourselves to His Word. I know I've had family and friends and, and even you know, Christians and non-Christians will wonder at us and think it's strange that we come to church twice a day with our four-year-old and our two-year-old and our baby. And to the world, I understand why that's strange. I think it shouldn't be as strange to Christians. Because even if my baby or my toddler doesn't understand much from coming to church, one thing I hope, and I think they will take away is this. Mommy and Daddy esteem God's Word, and we must listen to God's Word. And, and what happens here is important. Even if they understand that and that alone, that is a, that is a win. Even if they just understand that, that this, is, this is precious, this is something to be 
valued and esteemed, as, as the psalm says, more than gold, sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. Even that is a win. And I say that to encourage you, maybe you have young children as we do. It can be tiring sometimes to get them out, to get out to church. It's worth it. It's worth it to open the Scriptures in your home and to teach them the Word. It's worth it for you to, to make the trip, to spend the gas money as gas prices increase. It's, it's worth it to, to be here among the saints because we need God's Word. We need to be in God's presence with God's people. It is so precious, so valuable. And indeed, it can become increasingly rare. And so what God is doing here is a, is a special thing. It's a precious thing. And it shouldn't be lost on us either that this is not the norm. You know, the, there's, as the Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, prophets and apostles were a foundation for the church. So, so we, we apply this in a slightly different way. We have the prophetic word here in the Scriptures, right? The foundation has been laid. And yet, nonetheless, we can value this revelation penned for us by the prophets, by the apostles that we have in the, in the Bible. And, and to say, too, as well, for parents and, and for everyone, really, do our children, do the young, young people, the next generation, do they see in us a proper disposition to God's Word? Are we, are we apathetic or disinterested or distracted or critical? Or, or, on the other hand, are we excited about God's Word? Are we focused? Are we eager to learn and submit our lives to the truth of the Word? Are we attentive? Are we humble? Oh, how our children need to see that of us. Oh, how that is what is deserved given our holy God and His grace in revealing Himself to us. And so, the Lord speaks the Lord calls young Samuel. And one little application as well for the first section before we look at the second section for the children. Children. Samuel comes with simple trust and response to God calling him. Calling him by name. And it's not that God is uh, calling uh, prophets or something like that here today. But, but Samuel's call, his conversion, is bound up with this call to be a prophet. And, and so he didn't know the Lord, but the Lord called him. And children, you can come to the Lord in faith as Samuel did and trust him and say, Speak, for your servant is listening. And you can come to the Lord and seek to serve Him all your days, humbly, in whatever capacity the Lord might have for you, even at a young age. 
You can serve Him, and you should serve Him. And you should come to Him also with your sin and trust Christ and turn from it and know there is atonement made for you at the cross. So like Samuel, come humble, come submissive, come trusting. And adults too, come with childlike faith, the same faith that Samuel has, and come and say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears, and be willing to do whatever the Lord would have you do, have us do. So we see a blind prophet in Eli. And in verses 10 through 18, we see also a bleak prediction a bleak prediction. This is the prophetic message given by the Lord to Samuel, this boy. He's willing to listen. He's willing to serve. He says, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And the message is uh, daunting. What the Lord has him do is daunting for a number of reasons. One, of course, is that he's young, as we've already discussed. You know, John the Baptist and some of the apostles and the Lord himself, they were, they were young men when they began their public ministries. Timothy was said by the apostle Paul to not allow others to look down on him because he's young. Well, here Samuel is literally a boy. And he is being asked of God to bring a message to a man who is in his 90s. Perhaps a 12-year-old speaking to someone who is... 98, at least he's 98 in chapter 4. Whether or not he's 98 in chapter 3, he doesn't say. But by chapter 4, he's 98. Okay, so here you have perhaps a 12-year-old speaking to a 98-year-old. And not just that, you have a young Levite boy speaking to the priest, the high priest, the one who is judging over Israel. Later it tells us he was judging over Israel. So he is the authority figure in the land and this boy is being called by God to go and preach a message to this man. This esteemed man, this aged man, this powerful man. So it's daunting both his youth and his audience. And thirdly, it's daunting because the message is severe. This is a heavy message. Maybe you don't think severe is the right word. There's other places in the Scripture where the Lord's judgment is described as severe. That's why I use it here. And it says in verse 11, the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. When people hear this message, it will send a shiver down their spine. Goosebumps on the arm. The hair on the back of their necks will stand. Such is this message and its weightiness, its heaviness. It is a message, honestly, it's purely of judgment. There is not a glimmer of hope for Eli and his house at this point in this message. And so it is a hard message for Samuel to deliver. It says, let's read, this, let's read this portion out loud. Verse 10 and on. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, 
Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Wow. Now, you might be wondering about what the Lord says there in his condemnation of Eli's house. It's, we've, we've looked already about their sin, the sin of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They're, they're stealing the meat which belonged to the Lord. They're abusing God's people and threatening violence against them. They're blaspheming God. They're fornicating. They're engaging in all, form, all sorts of wickedness that's not even described in detail. Eli rebukes their fornication, but he does not stop some of these other things. He does not intervene. He does not restrain them. It seems that he fattens himself with them on the food which they take by force. And so God rebukes this whole religious establishment, this whole priesthood, and calls for judgment upon them. He says, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. You might read that and think, that doesn't seem fair. Understand this, brothers and sisters. The Lord does not owe us forgiveness. The Lord does not owe us atonement. He doesn't even owe us revelation as his creatures, how much more as not only creatures, but rebel creatures who have rebelled against our creator, how much more does he not owe us forgiveness from our rebellion and transgression and sin against him? He does not owe us that. He did not owe Eli or his sons that either. Now the Lord had made provision in the law for atonement, You can read in the first chapters of Leviticus about the various sacrifices and how um, for different sins and different, um, um, different sacrifices would be offered for different reasons. And 
What you might notice in the law as you read through these sacrifices is it speaks at times of, of unintentional sins. It speaks of unknown sins. It speaks of sins done rashly. It speaks of uh, things where people later come to realize their guilt and confess it to the Lord. There are certain things mentioned in those chapters where the Lord simply says, they will bear their iniquity. And so, what the Lord says here is consistent. Eli and his sons will bear their iniquity for their blasphemy against God and their rebellion against Him. And you might say, well, phew, I'm glad we're in the new covenant. I'm glad that that's true of them, but the Lord wouldn't do that now. Brothers and sisters, the author of Hebrews makes the opposite line of reasoning. I think it'd be helpful for us to turn together to Hebrews chapter 10 and consider a related passage in Hebrews chapter 10 together. We're going to look at verses 19 through 31. I'm going to read Hebrews 10, 19 through 31. This is what it says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now catch this. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is Mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, brothers and sisters, I was written to the church in the New Testament. You see, if we harden ourselves toward the Lord and His Word, 
we hear the word, we hear the gospel, we hear the, the teaching of the truth, and we harden ourselves, and we harden ourselves, and we, and we go on sinning deliberately, intentionally, persistently, repeatedly, on and on and on. You may even call yourself a Christian. You may even come to church regularly, twice a Sunday. If you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after knowing of your sin, after being called to repent, and like Hophni and Phinehas, you turn aside. They were rebuked by their father. They were rebuked by the laity. And they kept on sinning and blaspheming God and engaging in all manner of wickedness. He says here, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is no other atonement except through Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is no other atonement. God will not be mocked. And for those who take the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, His blood shed, and trample it underfoot, trample underfoot the Son of God, how much worse, he says, will the judgment be than in the Old Testament? Not lighter, worse. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. so easy for Christians today to begin excusing sin and to take the, the sacrifice of Christ and use that as an excuse for sin rather than as a motivation to put sin to death and to turn from it. I don't want to be misunderstood here. What he's talking about is intentional, persistent, deliberate ongoing sin without repentance, knowingly hearing God's word and hardening yourself against it as a manner of life, he's saying there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And, and of course, we know and understand that no genuine born-again Christian falls away from the Lord. Rather, it shows that you have not genuinely been converted. You have not genuinely turned from your sin to begin with. There is no atonement for you. So if you're persisting, as Hophni and Phinehas did, in lust, continue and continue and continue to watch pornography without repentance, without turning away, or you engage in an affair, and you're rebuked for it, and you say, no, I'm going to pursue that. The Lord will atone for me. I'm just going to pursue my own course of immorality. You blaspheme God. You, you take His commands as they did clear commands and you say, I am just going to disobey them. I don't really care what the Lord says. I'm going to do what I want to do for my own interests. And, well, the Lord will show me mercy. Don't presume upon such things. I think that is a huge application of this passage for us even here today. Jesus says, go and sin no more. 
He tells us to turn from sin. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Humble yourself before Him. When you hear His Word, when your sin is exposed, don't harden yourself toward Him. Come to the cross. Of course, we need help in overcoming sin. We need the Spirit to be at work in overcoming sin. And there's struggles that Christians have in, in putting sin to death. I understand that, of course. I don't want to, I don't want to be misunderstood. But, but brothers and sisters, we need to be putting sin to death, turning from it, trusting in our Savior, softening our hearts toward His Word, responding to the truth with humility and repentance. And I think Samuel and Eli in this passage serve as an example both to preachers and to all who are under God's Word. All of us are under God's Word. Samuel as an example of boldness. This could have cost him dearly. He had to preach without shrinking back. That is the sort of preaching that is necessary. The New Testament were commended to pray for boldness. Boldness in preaching. Don't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, Paul says to the elders. I think it was in Ephesus. And, and then for, for all of us under God's Word, which is every one of us, May our attitude be like that of, of Eli. And this man who's being condemned with his family is actually commendable in this regard. Look at what he says. He says to Samuel, do not hide it from me. Don't hide from me the truth of God's word. None of it. Tell me, as, as it were, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Don't hide a single thing from me. Tell me everything the Lord has told you. May that be our attitude toward the Scriptures. And may we thank our pastor, Pastor Carl, for his courage, for preaching to us the whole counsel of God. May we commend that. May we pray for that. May we encourage that. May we be eager to receive that, even the hard truths. And, and this truth, perhaps the hardest of all for Eli to hear, that he and his sons condemned. He says in this as a response, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. May that be the sort of humility and posture of our hearts as well toward the Lord in his word. Truth is, if, if we're never uncomfortable under God's word, if we're never uh, even perhaps embarrassed or feeling ashamed when hearing God's Word, it's, that, that's probably not a good thing. Either we're not listening or there's something wrong with the message because God's Word should be correcting and reforming our lives, exposing our sins so that we might become more like our Savior, helping us to Put sin to death and follow after Jesus Christ. And so there's times for each of us, and myself included, where we're going to sit in our seats and feel like, oh, that's me. And you know what you do with that? You say, it's the Lord's word. May the Lord give me strength to change, to turn from this sin. God, grant me spiritual 
strength to turn away from this sin and put it to death. That should be our response. That should be the humility of our hearts. Just as Eli says, it is the Lord. What, what was said is true. Whatever God determines is right. And so we've seen a blind priest. We've seen a bleak prediction. But, but here's the good news at, at the end of this passage. A blossoming prophet. Verses 19 to 21. And this more brief. Verse 19 through 21. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. See, God is raising up a prophet of his word for his people in those days. As a blind man needs vision, those in darkness need light, so we need the Lord to reveal Himself to us through the prophet whom He appoints. And that is what the Lord did. That is what this whole passage is really about. God raising up Samuel as a prophet appointed for His people. And God authenticating Samuel through this prediction which is about to come to pass. And in the fulfillment of Samuel's words, God condemns the existing religious establishment and sets up Samuel as a leader for his people through whom his word will come. And this is the beginning of what you might call an awakening in Israel. Good things to come. You see, it was dark and like the, the lamp there in the tabernacle, nonetheless, in the darkness, the light had not gone out. And God endeavored to reveal Himself to people who are lost and hopeless. And in our day, you might say, things outside are dark in this world. It is a dark place. Tragedy is everywhere. Horrible atrocities are committed. So much evil. It's a dark place, but you know what? God's light continues. And we look here and we see Samuel raised up as a prophet, but the truth is, Samuel is not the prophet like Moses ultimately. Right? We, we looked at Deuteronomy 18 earlier. This prediction of a prophet like Moses who will arise for God's people. And though Samuel bears resemblance to Moses in some regards, and God reveals Himself to Samuel to be a prophet to His people, there is a greater prophet needed. There is a prophet who's not only like Moses, but, but greater than Moses. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
when we come to the New Testament, Acts chapter 3 quotes Deuteronomy 18 and references it with regard to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the prophet, capital P. And not merely a prophet. He is God's Son. Hebrews 1 tells us, in former days God spoke to us through the prophets. In these last days, God has spoken to us through His own Son. Praise God for that. And indeed, Luke chapter 9, God says, again referencing Deuteronomy 18, He says, this is My Son. Listen to Him. Listen to him as you would a prophet, but more than a prophet because he's my son. And God, when he says that, he takes the two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, he takes the three greatest apostles of the New Testament, he brings them all together, and then he sets his son in glory before them, and he says, this is my son of all people. Listen to him. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, repent for God's kingdom is at hand. That was His message. He comes as the Word made flesh. He dwells among us. He dies to make atonement for our sin, for all who would trust in Him, for all who would turn from sin to confess Him as Lord and humbly serve Him. So, if you're here this morning and you're listening and and you've been pricked in your conscience and you're realizing, I've rebelled against God. I've, I've committed the same sort of, sorts of things that Hophni and Phinehas did, or that Eli did. You realize, I need atonement. Understand that the opportunity of repentance is still there for you. You have breath in your lungs. You can hear the word now. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Come as Samuel did. Listen. Serve. Proclaim. He calls us the church, to be His people, His light in a dark world. We must not shrink back. We must be bold in our witness as Samuel did. 